This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back to the Struck Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's show, we're going to talk about a new contract between Bombardier and Learjet and the U.S. Air Force. Looks like it's worth about almost half a billion dollars, so exciting for them. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about more about supersonic jets. So obviously, Ariane collapse. We'll talk a little bit more about that. There's been some interesting news stories that have come out. And then we'll also talk about Boom uh, announcing a partnership with United. United wants to buy a bunch of planes. So we'll see if that comes to fruition. Uh, obviously, that's going to be quite a long game. In our engineering segment, we'll talk about a Boeing uh, MQ-25 drone refueling an F-18 FA-18 in flight. So pretty exciting. First time a drone has refueled a manned aircraft. And we'll also talk a little bit about uh, airships and why one maker is betting that passengers will choose comfort over speed. Lastly, in our EVTOL segment, we'll talk about eHang and some interesting news about flight controls from Joby. So, Alan, let's start with Bombardier. They've got a 464 0.8 million dollar contract for Bombardier Global 6000 aircraft with the Air, Air Force. Um, what's notable about this aircraft? Uh, it's just a think of it as a mid-sized business jet, which makes the tube section uh, decently sized, so you can put some humans in it and put equipment in it. So if you're running a special missions aircraft where you want to put a couple of uh, control centers in it, monitoring stations, those kind of things, you can f- you can fit that all that infrastructure into the aircraft. You have room to do it. There's uh, places to mount all that hardware. And then typically what those aircraft will have is uh, sensors mounted on the top of the aircraft and the fuselage and on the, on, on the, on the belly to look left or right, up and down and communicate satellite data. <clears throat> back to whoever they want to send it to. So there's a, you just need a certain amount of size aircraft to do all that. And the the Global 6000 is sort of is really a, a nice platform for that. And that's they've been doing a lot of work in uh, Wichita at Learjet there on modding and doing military support aircraft for a long time. I mean, I I think I can remember back into the early 2000s they were doing some. Back then I worked on a couple of those, and and I think the the, the bonus here is that Wichita as a city has been really getting hammered in terms of not having any really new projects going on. Textron's got a couple of derivative projects going on. But in terms of Learjet, Learjet's been shrinking and they shut down all production of a Learjet just recently. So everybody that's left at Learjet on the west side of town there needs something to work on. And so it's good. They, you know, a $400, 500000000 million project gets them a couple years out in terms of support and they have a, have a great flight test center they've always had a, a great flight test center in wichita so all the bombardier flight test programs uh even though the aircraft may be built up in canada typically it gets shipped down to kansas to do all the flight tests the flight test pilots all the people that support flight test uh the technicians and mechanics uh, all the specialist engineers that are doing all the all the data monitoring and that sort of thing are all 
located in Wichita. So there is a like this little expertise center in Wichita, and 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 the military mods are done in Wichita too. So it has this certain niche of expertise, and they've been a little bit struggling. So this five hundred million dollar contract is going to get them uh, going again, which is good for the city because. It's, it's it's Wichita was always the center of small aircraft forever, and it seemed to lose its luster. A lot of as we've seen on some of the EV tall stuff, it's all at least most of it's in California. So it's moving out of Wichita, which is sad um, because Wichita has a lot of good engineers and a lot of good mechanics and technicians are all there. Everybody's there, but these new programs are not starting there. So do you think it'll completely rebound as a, as the hub that it once was, or is it so. probably you know, seen its its best days, but can maybe still you know recover and and, and strengthen? Well, here's what's driving the California bit, and also uh, Beta up in uh, Vermont, not far from us, is availability of cash. It has to do where the investors are located. They're locating these companies where the investors are. In the case of Beta, the investors are. Vermont based or New Hampshire based in some cases. There's a couple of different investors there. In the case of like a Joby or an Archer and those kind of companies, that's all the Silicon Valley uh, cash or Google cash um, investment groups that are there. So they're, they're moving the aircraft companies to where the investors are. And that didn't used to be the case. It used to be uh, the investors would come to you because you had the infrastructure. That's that's all gone away. It's, it's crazy. Yeah, Think it's about changed. it. Yeah. Which, which it makes sense. Like, you know, you hear stories like if you want to be a writer, like find a place where there's a strong community of yes. writers so you can bounce ideas off each other. You can be around each other. You can be pushed by one another. Right. So I, I, I get that. It, it, it seems like, you know, the world's so connected that it wouldn't matter where your company is. But, you know, when you're down the street and you can pitch an investor who's really busy and he says, yeah, I got I got 20 minutes. And like, stop by this restaurant yeah. and be here at, you know, 140 on the right. dot. And if you're in town, you can do that. And if you're in Wichita and you've got to jump on a plane, you know, that's not, that's not and feasible. And there's not so, many direct flights. I mean, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, Wichita's in a weird spot. There's not a lot of direct flights to Wichita. It's got to go through Denver or Dallas to get there. So it's not an easy city to get in and out of. And they've been working on that for forever to try to get more direct flights to Wichita, which would, I think, open it up. But the other part of Wichita, which is really strange right now, so, you know, Spirit's, Spirit's there. And they, they make a lot of parts for Air, Airbus and Boeing aircraft. And they're they're big company the kind of what was boeing at one point kind of moved to spirit not mm-hmm. so much in people but in terms of company format what it does yeah uh but that they started a uh, kind of a collaborative situation with wichita state Ooh, yeah probably 20 years ago called NIAR, National Institute of Aviation Research, if I remember the acronym correctly, which was supposed to be that uh, incubator for aviation companies and, and, and to support the local aviation companies to give them a, an advantage uh, on, on a technical side, on a testing side, on a technology side. And it hasn't seemed to come to fruition in the sense of all the great work that NIAR has done is being sucked up by these companies that are not in Kansas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're all using that data that NIAR provides for free, and it's funded. Wait, are you saying are you saying they're not in Kansas well, anymore? Yeah, I mean, so, sort Some of. Data. Yeah, I mean, so the data, all the all the all the, if you think about composites technology and all the all the little bits and pieces, to, I don't want to get too technical about composites, but there's a lot of data you need to know about how a, a composite and an epoxy system work together. Hot, cold, wet uh, performance data. 
NIAR does all that, and that data gets publicized, then the FAA and the federal government and the state of Kansas in some part fund that. And then companies that anywhere in the country can use that data, which is awesome because it, it stops sort of the repetitive testing that all these small companies have to do. It's a lot of overhead expense that you don't have to pay for anymore because you've got this common repository for that data. The problem is, this is the common repository mm-hmm. of the data that no one has to pay for. So I don't have to be in Kansas to tap that tap that resource. I can be in California, or I can be in Vermont, which is what they're doing, or it can be in Minnesota, like Cirrus is, or or whoever Diamond uh, up in Canada. And it do, it doesn't drive those smart airplane companies to be in state. So I wonder if they had a chance to rethink that, whether they would do the same thing. I would I'd say probably not. The state of Kansas is probably very disappointed in. Not so much NIAR. I don't think they're disappointed in necessarily NIAR because I think it's doing a lot of good things. I think what they're disappointed in is it's not driving the traffic and the businesses like they thought it would. That's the that's a, that's the pinch point, and I, I can't imagine that hasn't come up. I haven't seen a lot of I haven't seen a lot of articles about that yet, but that's got to come up at some point because there's billions of dollars being invested in Joby, Archer, Whisk, Beta, you name them. Mm-hmm. There's got to be. You start counting up, there's going to be three, four billion dollars between everybody. Very little that's in Kansas, yeah. if any. Yeah, and that's what they were looking to go do. That's what that's what that whole effort was set up for. So, kind of a disappointing situation. Hopefully, it resolves itself, and hopefully, people realize the companies realize that there's great technology in Kansas and take advantage of it because they should. They should. Well, moving on. So last uh, our, our last episode, we talked about Arion shutting down, and a really good in uh, good article from evaint.com, which is the executive and VIP aviation international website, and they just talk about what doomed Arion, and and it seems like Alan, a bunch of this was the fact that they got going yeah. in 2004 when a lot of this technology was more cutting edge than it is today in reference to. Uh, range, like range was much more significant. The speed mm-hmm. was much more significant than it is today. You know, jet engines have improved in, um, you know, they're quieter, yeah. they're more efficient, range is much better. So a lot of the things that the supersonic flight was boasting, you know, like twice the speed was then cut down to like, you know, 1.6 right. times the speed, you know, you know right. this and this. And it just started to, they started to, the, the playing field started to get a little bit more level. Obviously, supersonic <laughs> is a lot faster, but it's not, you're not cutting no. a flight in half anymore. Um, and it sounds like at a certain point they ran out the engine that they were initially going to use, um, which was made by Pratt and Whitney, the JT eight D was taken out of service. And even then that might not be viable today because of noise, um, and emissions, uh, standards. So it was this sort of part of this whole process that maybe a lot of their technology aged out and the concept, like, like I said, other more commercial technologies sort of caught up. Was that part of this, this well, thing with, with Arion? sort of two pieces to it yeah i think technology obviously will will go faster than the aircraft will i mean once you lock in an aircraft design you're kind of stuck and technology keeps rolling on and it goes very mm-hmm. fast today and so once you put your put your stake in the ground you got to hope you get it done really get the aircraft done really fast before technology just blows you out of the water that's part of it yeah, yeah. Which we've talked yeah. about a bunch yeah, that's why I don't want to buy a car. I don't want to buy a car today because we're going to have yeah. amazing cars in it's three true. years. I was just telling my dad this. I'm like, wait another wait another year. Oh, get same a thing for electric. Apple anyway, computers. Continue. 
totally changing. And everybody's saying, wait, wait, wait until I get the, the new chips are out. I bought a laptop <laughs> this morning, by the way. So, <laughs> But I did wait. I did wait. So The second anyway. part of the Arion is, um, well, I think there's a United, United Airlines had something to do with it. There's just too many coincidences. All, all the stuff's happening too fast for United uh, selected Boom. Obviously, Boom's making a larger aircraft and 70, 80 passenger aircraft, uh, supersonic thing. And Ariane was working on the business side of it. So there's a there's a little bit of a difference between those two. But uh, an airline picking a winner will drive investors away or can drive investors away. Can. And I think, but uh, one of the things that I think which NASA has been poking about, and I haven't seen a lot of noise yet, except from NASA, which is the majority of your time in, a, in any flight has to do with getting to and from the airport. And in the United States, if you look at all the airports there are, it, I think the, the quotation was like 90% of, of uh, Americans are within 15 minutes of an airport. You don't really think of it that way, but you are. I mean, you are really close to a lot of airports. I know I'm. Yeah. What? You're really that close to an airport. Impossible. Because there's a lot of small airports. That. Yeah, and so am I. I'm I in the middle of nowhere. And I, but I feel like a lot of yeah. people live in the suburbs. Well, okay, so okay, any right. any airport, not major airports. Any, That's any airport, okay. right? So I gotcha. the, 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 the subject was, well, okay. do I need a vertical takeoff and landing aircraft or do I need a short takeoff and landing aircraft? And can, because there's so many airports around, there's one five minutes from me. And like I said, yeah. I live in the middle of nowhere. That, uh, the do you is it is it the time save getting to him from the airport going checking your luggage all that stuff if you got rid of all that and you could go to your local airport and fly where you wanted to go or get to a hub much quicker to shorten that time down does the supersonic have any play and it may not it may not i mean if, mm. if you're thinking about doorstep to doorstep that little piece in the middle, which is supersonic, does decrease the amount of time there, but everything else is still the same all the waiting in line. Drive to the airport. That's a that's a good point. That's a good point. You don't think about something like that being such a threat to this crazy technology, but you're right. If it's if it continues to encroach on on, right. on the overall speed, because you're like you said, it's not just time in the air. It's everything else. It's complete time. If you're like, oh, I could take this supersonic flight, it'll take me six hours. But if I take this conventional flight, because of the other things they've done, you know, it's only six and a half hours. Right. And it's cheaper. Right. I, I think that's yeah, that's going to be tough. A significant part of where the electric vertical takeoff and landing market may interrupt the supersonic market, at least within the country and regional stuff, for sure. But, it, you know, I think it, it makes logical sense mm -hmm. that that technology is not going to get any slower. It's going to expand such that it would be great if I could drive 15 minutes to the airport, get on a flight or some sort of aircraft and go where I wanted to go in a reasonable price, regardless if there's 50 passengers on it, 20 passengers on it, or 200 passengers on it. Can I do that? Because that's a huge advantage. I'd be willing to pay more not to drive an hour and a half or two hours to an airport to do all the stuff. Uh, that would be a price point I would pay. I would pay another hundred dollars yeah. for that flight easily because it's worth it. And then I think as we get going further and further mm -hmm. down this road of and more knowledge about the vertical takeoff and getting in and getting into smaller and smaller airports much more quietly on an electric aircraft that explodes that possibility. And America is designed to use that. And that's what NASA is trying to say is like, we have the infrastructure to handle all this today. We don't need to build airports anywhere. We got plenty of airports. 
We just need the aircraft to be able to come in and out of them. That's what NASA's saying. And I think that's a very interesting point because it does twist the technology knob a little bit away from vertical to short takeoff and landing, which is a lot easier to make, by the way. Yeah, it doesn't right. take nearly as much energy density. <laughs> to fly. To, it does. It just does it, right? You know, if you have a battery, yeah. get up yeah. go off the ground. So it's an interesting yeah. concept. It's something that I think the industry needs to be, start wrapping its head around. Now that we're coming, at least in the United States, coming out of COVID, I think there's a lot more engineers getting back to their desk, starting to scratch their head and say, yeah. And NASA's starting, NASA and the FAA yeah. are going to start pushing a little bit on what are we doing? Are you gonna, we're not going to, like I tell you, Dan, all the time, no one's flying to the local pizza shop. That not likely to happen in my lifetime just because of the safety risk, but they will fly mm-hmm. to the airport that's 15 minutes down the road. That will happen. And I, I think that's where we got to go. Well, let's let's dovetail that into into Boom. So big news from Boom, the remaining supersonic uh, flight startup. They're uh, partnering with United. United wants to buy a number of their Overture uh, aircraft. <laughs> and I, I had to have a chuckle because I watched their really well done uh, you know like you know video showing the partnership between the two companies um and uh is it coming 2029 20, it's like right. oh my god that's so far away and it's just funny that you could have a video laughs, like right? that that's like <laughs> eight, eight years people it's coming it's like i can't even imagine what i'll be doing at, right. at age 43 <laughs> you know in eight yeah. years from now and uh, it just seems like there's a lot of fuss about something that's really far away. And this this article from uh, EVA mentioned that there isn't a clear winner as far as supersonic engines right now, like a clean, quiet yeah. Mach 2 engine. So that needs to be developed. There's a lot and of then there's, I mean, so Boom has, you know, a demonstrator, the XB-1. I don't understand the United aspect of it very much. I know United was, wasn't it also United and... Uh, hooking up with one of the electric vehicle companies recently. Uh, but, because that doesn't make any sense to me either. <laughs> you know, United has a tough time flying what they own right now. I don't see the supersonic thing making much sense to them, besides positioning themselves as a company, mm-hmm. as being the technology company. We have the better cabins, we have the better atmosphere, we're pushing the pushing the boundaries. Delta has not played that, and Delta is the largest aircraft or largest airline in the United States. And it's weird to see United in that marketplace. But, you know, from a United standpoint, it seems like they're doing a lot of advertising about that boom connection. Like the Wall Street Journal had a full page article. United had a full page article in the Wall Street Journal talking about the, the procuring aircraft, supersonic aircraft. What, why, why, why now? Like, like I said, like it, in 2029, we may be flying these things. That full page ad has nothing to do with the pe- person that's going to fly that airplane. It has to do with investors, right? It, it's got to be some sort of investor play in terms of pushing up the stock price, um, gaining cash into the company to support it. Uh, something is going on there, which doesn't make any sense yet. And we're going to probably find out this summer. But it doesn't seem, the whole thing seem odd. Like airlines don't make a big hub about buying an airplane until like the airplane's in service. Yeah, that's that's my point too. It's like, all right, well, I'll yeah. revisit this when I'm 42 right. years old. <laughs> you know, I'm 35 today. That just it's just you know, and uh, it's so like the here's some stats about it. Um, you know, the they're going to be 200 million a plane is what it says mm-hmm. for the supersonic overture jet. 
um, 35 plane deal at about 3 billion. Um, they'll fly at about 60,000 feet, twice as fast as, to, as uh, right. today's subsonic jets. So, but again, 2029. I mean, like you said, so much could change well, in that time yeah. where the world could Even be on the investment side, Dan, do you think the CEO is going to be there three years from yeah. now? I, I don't. I don't. That's a good question. Well, and that, that's, a, that's a really interesting point when, I mean, job turnover today is so fast. I mean, the average worker in any industry mm-hmm. is what? Right. Four or five years before they're changing jobs. So any engineer that's on the project today and next year and next year is probably unlikely yeah. to still be with the company yeah. by the time their plane's launching. Now that might change if they're yeah, obviously with, you know, they, they want to see the project through, I'm sure. So that could be a very big uh, outlier and not, not the case, but but yeah, you're right. I mean, yeah, you can have will. a lot of turnover between that. You totally now and will. Then. All right, so let's talk uh, engineering today. So Boeing and, uh, you know, their new drone um, refueling uh, aircraft, the MQ-25 successfully transferred fuel to an F-18, uh, F-A-18, I, I slur those for right, right together, the F-A-18 Super Hornet. Um, and that's pretty cool. I mean, to think that, you, you know, you need fuel out there in the stratosphere, hey, send up the, send up the drone. It takes people out of the, out of the safety risk situation, right? You can, you can insert uh, basically a drone, un, unmanned vehicle out there and tank her up. <laughs> Right, right. In a combat situation, you don't have to worry yeah. so much about risking a, you know, the seven six seven type aircraft or an old seven oh seven type aircraft as a refueling aircraft, which is very vulnerable. Clearly, very vulnerable in terms of being detected by radar, being shot at, all those kind of things make it very vulnerable. Whereas the MQ twenty five, it looks mm-hmm. somewhat stealthy the way it's designed. Right, there's not a lot of reflective surfaces on it, so I'm sure there's some stealth technology in it. Yeah. So you can get this refueling option in quasi, at least quasi stealthily, and to refuel your fighter attack aircraft uh at the in the front lines which is something that's never really been conceived before i remember if you remember uh during the iranian hostage situation i don't even know if you were born dan back in what's it 79 or 80 i don't think i'm not sure right yeah, so well, you, I definitely was not born in 79 well yeah i mean so. d- a lot of a lot of age talk today i think that 35 when they went years to, old 1985 um uh, Best year. Get the hostages out of Iran at the time of Tehran at the time. I think that one of the issues they had was refueling and refueling the helicopters to get people in. And then the, obviously they ran into a dust storm and got in a serious accident. But, um, you know, the, the refueling can limit a lot of your options in terms of where and when you can uh, put force on a situation. And if you can refuel pretty much anywhere at any time, and a much more efficient vehicle to haul the fuel, that's for sure, uh, to get it in the, the hot spot you need to get it to, boy, that makes a lot, a lot of sense. But I, if, if you can imagine, though, how much that the Navy and the Air Force eventually, and all the services, uh, Marines will be able to use this thing too, will have to go through a lot of flight testing to make sure there's no weird uh, aerodynamic inefficiencies between the two. It's going to cause turbulence and disconnects and all the stuff that happens. It's not an easy thing to dock up to two moving objects moving at speed yeah. <laughs> to to mate up and hold themselves together long enough to pump a bunch of fuel yeah. on. That's not <laughs> that's not an easy thing to go do. And to automate it, it can't be simple. 
So there's probably a lot more work to go do. But it is it is fascinating to see it done for the first time, like to watch it go. It's just really cool. Yeah. And then uh, another interesting story, this from AIN online, is that uh, hybrid air vehicles says their Airlander 10 airship is on track to be ready to carry 100 passengers in 2025, which is also four <laughs> years away. But I'm into this. I yeah. wanted, I'm a big fan of slow travel. I love taking long, long distance trains. Um, another trip there is in my future. So I would for sure go for this where you'd be on this big blimp, um, the Hindenburg, Hindenburg 8.0, whatever. And, um, yeah, just like huge windows. Just, I mean, for certain people like myself who don't mind, like, I just like to think and I can write. I don't care. Like it's part of the trip, just getting there. Like that's why I like the you know thirty hour train ride. That's part of it for me. I'm not right. in a rush to get to the to point B, but like there's there's a subset of the market that right. would do this. Like I'm an example. You know, pending how much this thing costs, but um, I mean, what what are your thoughts? Obviously, there's a lot more than just some demand. Right. It's got to be financially viable. It's there's a lot of hurdles. I mean, what what does the FAA come in as far as uh, airships? Well, there's, there's already existing regulation on airships, uh, and I've done some airship work on the newest Goodyear airships, which are not blimps anymore. They're sort of rigid dirigibles, uh, much like a Zeppelin. In fact, I think they, they're actually, I think if I remember correctly, it's been a couple of years, I think they are Zeppelins. Uh, but the infrastructure to... And what's the actual difference? I, I don't know. Well, the like difference. the original Goodyear blimp is like an, it's like a balloon. It's inflated like a balloon. There is no internal okay. superstructure inside of it. And the Zeppelins, like if you think about the Hindenburg, it's, you know, it's mm-hmm. it has nothing to do with the, today's design. But that's that it, it, people can think about it and know what that is. It had a if you think about it, it has an internal uh, at the time aluminum superstructure on the inside, so it is rigid. It is a rigid body okay. that it has containers inside of it that store. Um, in Hindenburg's case, hydrogen or helium. There's a little bit different method of building them. That's all. Uh, but the, the 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 key is, I think, on, on terms of going slow. I'm not sure. I'm not sure in the United States that's going to click. <laughs> I don't think much in the United States moves slowly. Pretty much, if you let people drive as fast as they possibly could, you would you would have interstates running at 100, 105 all the time. Uh, and that just seems to be built into the system. <laughs> built into the system. I think you learn it at in when you go to kindergarten. You know, go fast. And that's <laughs> and then you get another thirteen years of education. And it it seems like uh, a lot of the slower modes of transportation are losing favor, even though they may be green, uh, quote unquote greener or don't emit as much carbon. Uh, you're not seeing huge shifts in moving away from cars yet two trains or slower modes of transportation you still really haven't seen it except mm-hmm. except in big cities and people at least right now in the United states are moving out of big cities into the country so it's going to be I, I always think if you're betting on a slower on, on people choosing to do something slower that's probably not going to be a good investment and i wonder how the investors are thinking about that company and whether they can get enough investors to make to actually start start building hardware and making it a reality well i think it depends on how it's framed i mean imagine this way so imagine you're leaving from dc to new york city for a weekend you could take the train and get there in you know 
I don't know what it, what it is what it is like two and a half hours, or say there was a slower train that was five hours, but it was really more like a party bus. So you're gonna have like <laughs> drinks and food with your friends. Yeah, that's a pretty in- attractive option if you're going up there with you know having a couples weekend or you're going up with a bunch of bunch of friends or whatever your family. Like hey, let's do this. You know we're gonna be together anyway. Like the whole weekend's about being together. So instead of having three you know not super comfortable but faster hours let's do five hours and you know we get good food and you know we can we can drink Mm -hmm. we can do whatever it's just like you can walk around it's kind of like a lounge atmosphere i think there's i think there's some some market for that if and only if it's really marketed well where it's like look don't think of this don't think of this as taking the train to to here think of this as taking a party bus to or a limo or being at the bar with your friends, yeah. but you're in transit. That's I think I think the selling point because again you can't. T- if that's not the selling point, then I don't right. know what is. Right? It's like this is a luxury because because the the air yeah the the airship idea of it's like hey let's go to L A from San Francisco for the weekend. Let's take the airship. It's three three hours or four hours, and we can look at the skyline. <laughs> you get to see the sunset. You have drinks. You have some food. Whatever. Like. That that makes a lot of sense to me. That's a cool little thing that you could say you yeah, did, right? Well, you're right. And I think maybe you only get a couple celebrities to tweet out that they're on this oh, airship, no. and they're just enjoying their four hour stay on it, just like they'd be at the bar for four yeah. hours, like whatever. Then I think that could could have its place. But like I said, it's got to be. It ha- people have to know that this is not just slow, stupid right. transportation. <laughs> it's it's an experience, and it's you're going somewhere, but you're doing it obviously yeah. for the experience so that is interesting you know, I, I, what pops to mind obviously is new york city to atlantic city los angeles slash san diego slash maybe even phoenix going to vegas <laughs> those things like routes that are possible but that's about four aircraft <laughs> you have to mm-hmm. make more than four you need to you need, a, you need to sell about 50 to get your investment back on any of these projects so they got to find another Another couple of routes somewhere to make it possible. It, it, it makes no sense to build. Well, those routes you just mentioned could yeah. make some sense. I mean, like you said, I don't know if is L.A. to Vegas. Is that reachable? Yeah, there's a highway Maybe. between the two. Oh, might, my gosh. Might yeah. be. Yeah. That would be great. I think that's exactly their kind it's of a, like demographic. Like you have a whole group that's It's the same thing to San Francisco and, and Lake Tahoe. I, I like uh, Zuckerberg has mm-hmm. a house on Lake Tahoe. So they're all, there's a big contingency between <laughs> between Northern California, Silicon Valley and going to Tahoe on the weekends. If you look at the airport, it's near Tahoe. It's just full of these really expensive, fancy airplanes. So there is there is a marketplace for that. There totally is. Just, just how many, how many airplanes can you sell? I think from the business business side, that's what you have to look at. All right. So in our EV tall segment, let's first talk about eHang. So their shares are up recently because they've just uh, published a video that shows their larger aircraft, the eHang two sixteen, has made its uh, sort of maiden voyage. Uh, without passengers in it and yeah i mean they're often flying again again demonstrating one of the things ehang has done well is demonstrate their vehicles in flight now Mm -hmm. most of the time there's no one on it um but they're you know you've talked about this a number of times you're like hey company if you say you've got the technology you say you've got the battery you say you've got the range let's see it fly right um and whether ehang is doing that with or without passengers they are they are 
putting their vehicles up in the up in the air. So, yeah, Alan, what are, what are your takes on on the two sixteen here and and, and E Hang's latest news? Well, they're they're trying to demonstrate capability, right, and trying to show they're a market leader and the first to market can plant the flag in a sense of, hey, we're first, therefore we own this marketplace. Everybody else is a up and comer. That's the PR behind it. The the uh, push on the sort of safety certification side is yet to be finished. And I think there's a lot of work there still, uh, particularly if it's autonomous. And I, I don't know how you're going to get over that hurdle. Maybe in Ch- inside China, it sounds like that's doable, but I'm not sure Japan's going to sign up for that. I doubt it because uh, J- Japan has a um, or standing up a certification authority. And whether they would agree to something as contra- could be potentially controversial as an autonomous aircraft would be a big debate item, I'm sure. Uh, and, and I, you know, it's interesting that they're even taking it to Japan in a sense. It is a marketplace for them, clearly. But you, th- we, you would think China would be the such a massive marketplace that you would not need to go anywhere else. I mean, t- to me, there's a couple of obvious marketplaces. J- Japan would be Japan would be one of them, but also it would be in California, right? I mean, it, running around Silicon Valley would be another one that would make a lot of sense to people, or, or even Chicago or Houston. Uh, but you know, maybe they're just staying a little bit closer to home, see how things are going. But uh, we'll, we'll we'll have to keep an eye on them, and I, I I I'm just still a little curious to see how the structure of this company comes together and whether they could deliver what they think they're going to deliver. As soon as you put a pilot in any of these, your your expenses go up, your profitability goes down. There's a lot more stuff you got to go do. Not sure that's where they want to go. And I'm not sure anybody wants to go there. Quite honestly, all the all the electric vertical takeoff and landing companies in the United States are all talking about autonomous right now, and that's why they don't want to pay for a pilot. Yeah, well, I mean these these trial flights that or this trial flight that just happened in Japan. I mean. Um, it, it still seems like they have a similar design on the 216 compared to their, mm. uh, their smaller oh, yeah. one. It's very um, similar. you know, and so does that design need to evolve still? Like, I know you're still skeptical of the, the rotor blades yeah, being I don't like the on rotor the bottom blades. or they're, they're essentially shin level. Right. Um, and that seems <laughs> potentially scary. Yeah. You're always worried about uh, propeller coming loose and going somewhere and they're just not at just from a, if you're trying to sell this to somebody, to the common person doesn't fly a lot, that's the first thing that sticks out is you got these rotating blades that move in at several thousand RPM that are right by your ankles mm-hmm. and it doesn't feel right. And this, how a passenger feels inside the vehicle has a lot to do with whether they're going to accept it or not. It's like most automobiles today, right? Uh, if, it, if it looks unsafe or feels unsafe, people won't buy it. They just won't. Uh, and I, th- I think that's one of the hurdles they have to overcome. And if you look at a lot of the other uh, EV tall designs, the the rotors are up high. And I, I think they're mm-hmm. all coming to the same conclusion. Just like a helicopter. Yeah. yeah I mean, at, above head height. Right. Because why wouldn't they be, I guess? Right. right. But there's a, there, there's a cost. There's a cost in a way an implication to doing it above above your head, whereas there's just less mm-hmm. infrastructure weight on the, on the aircraft to do it where they're doing it down low. It just is. Uh, but it does lead to other issues of prop striking the ground, coming in a little sideways. There could be a pole or something sticking up, a fire hydrant or something. You hit that with the propeller, and that's going to be an interesting day. Uh, and and that's, that's where when you start to 
get into the certification of the aircraft, a lot of those design details start to flesh out. Where they, if you're just designing it because it's something you like, you think it's going to work, and it's simple, it's simple to assemble, you don't necessarily take into consideration all the variables you would normally see in a sort of a helicopter yeah. situation. Yep. All right, moving on. Our last topic of today is uh, with Joby Aviation. So they've just released a video uh, demonstrating their flight controls uh, in a simulator environment, just showing how incredibly easy they are to use. They've taken some of the complexity out of it, it seems like. Um, Alan, what's your what's your take on their flight controls? It seems out of the box. It's clear they're trying to make it user-friendly. Right. Are they trying to replace pilots? Are they trying to, like, why does it need to be as, obviously, simplicity is always right. better, right? We get that. Um, but does this, uh, does this strike you in any sort of way being so very simple? It does in the sense that there aren't any rudder pedals. And I think pilots are going to get into it, are going to have a really strange feeling of not being able to go to kick the rudder to, to to do things because it's all automated via the control stick it's it's uh a lot less to do than a standard helicopter where you got a cyclic and everything else i mean there's just a, if you get into a helicopter and realize all the stuff that the pilots are doing there's a lot going on and there's a lot of buttons and knobs and a lot to pay attention to and helicopter pilots I, I don't. I don't even know how they do it. It's just way behind my level of comprehension of, of being able to coordinate my body in that fashion. But the, they can do it. And so, obviously, the problem with, with the VTOL is trying to simplify it down. Where uh, a, a relatively low time, time pilot uh, can operate the vehicle safely. And so, how you do that? You start taking away some of the complexity to it, and you simplify the controls and make them more Game Boyish than um, Cessna ish. I'll call it. So that's a, that, that plays mm-hmm. into how you set up the systems to work together. So all the electrical systems and, and the distribution systems, all the actuators that exist on the aircraft are not really connected to the pilot at all except via wire. So it's, it, it is a fly-by-wire-ish system. Some parts may be – there's there's debates about that. But I think for the most part, it's, it's a fly-by-wire system or fly-by-light system. So that as you move the stick, a computer reads your your movement of the stick and then interprets that in a certain way based on the flight conditions you're in and then does the appropriate thing, in this case, most likely with the propellers and flaps and whatever else. So it takes some of the logic of the, the coordination between the human and the aircraft. It sort of disconnects them a little bit. Uh, and the benefit of that is that the aircraft can protect itself, so you can try to force it to do things that it shouldn't do, and it won't let you do them. Airbus has kind of got a system set up that way in their aircraft where it's uh, pilot pilots only can do so much. Whereas, like the Boeing 737, pilots can do a lot, right? So pilots can get them in situations they should not be in. Because Boeing's philosophy has mm-hmm. been the pilot isn't the pilot in command, that the pilot should be controlling what the aircraft does and have command on the aircraft. Airbus has pulled some of that away from the pilots and is in putting in basically flight control computers to do some of the interpretation to keep the aircraft safe. So I, I think uh, watching the Joby approach, and I think all the other aircraft companies, I think Beta's going the same way, and uh, Whisk and Archer, everybody's, everybody sounds like they're all doing the same thing, which is uh, rethinking how a human interfaces with an aircraft uh, and to simplify it such that uh, it gets safer, in theory gets safer, and it requires less pilot training time. So 
there's a lot of work to do there. You just can't say, we've got this new system and it's going to work. And look how great it is. That's not what happens. The FAA says, prove it, right? If you're going to move away, and, I, and if you're going to move away from a system in which we're training pilots, and the FAA is essentially helping to train pilots in a sense of, here's the rudders, here's the stick, these are the things you do to avoid stall, this is what you do in a stall. All that may get thrown out the window, and you have to start over again. Well, it's not only you as a company making the aircraft. It's all the training stuff you have to do, getting all the pilots figured out, getting the FAA to agree to it, getting all the um, – basically a whole industry to switch mode of thinking, which is never easy. When you ever, whenever you, you try to take a whole industry yeah. and reorient it in a different way, particularly since it's – it's uh, evolving in a way that relies less on human interaction. That's hard to do. It'd be like, Dan, getting rid of the steering wheel in your car and putting it in a joystick. I think that'd be very hard for a lot of people to do. I really do. Mm, yeah. Right. It's it sort would. of intuitive. I'd crash it yeah, a bunch of times. But for sure. why wouldn't a joystick work in your car? It totally would. It, it, it would. The inputs are all it there. It would, for sure. But mm-hmm. I, I think if. And they, somebody has to have done studies on this years ago because it's a lot less stuff in a car to have a joystick than a steering wheel. And it's probably safer for that matter because that's one of the issues. A steering wheel hit you in the chest in an accident. That would go away. But we haven't gotten there yet. And I think one of the reasons we haven't gotten there is just the connection, mental connection, the physical connection between you and the thing that you're operating. There's certain things that humans like to do and feel comfortable with. And there's other things they don't feel comfortable with. And I wonder if we're going to bump up against that wall a little bit as we get to these electric vertical takeoff landing aircraft. All right. Well, that'll do it for today's episode of Struck. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for listening and please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from the show. And follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WGLightning. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.